It's time to speak with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers with Legally Speaking. Hey, Michael, how you doing? I'm doing great. What's on oh. the agenda? Oh, are you still there? <laughs> yeah, no, I was, thinking, I was just uh, reflecting upon the solution to the pickleball dilemma. It, uh, it seems to me the uh, ideal location would be in the uh, unused old town of the current museum. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, old town is going to be getting some miles on it. I'm sure it'll be uh, prominently figured in the traveling uh, carnival show that they're going to be replacing our museum with, apparently, unspecified at this <laughs> point, of course. Um, <laughs> what is on the agenda for you and me this week? Uh, well, it's been busy, I must say, from a legal perspective, uh, and there have been some really important decisions that have uh, come out, so lots to talk about. All right. Um, the first of those is a case out of the Supreme Court of Canada. It's called Regina versus Brown, uh, and it's a case that's got some uh, public attention. It's one dealing with the issue of extreme intoxication uh, and whether that can ever amount to a uh, defense in a criminal case. Mm-hmm. Um, and the background of it is really this. The, the criminal law ordinarily uh, has sort of a basic principle that for somebody to be guilty of a criminal offense, you need to have two things that they use sort of Latin words for. You've got the actus reus and the mens rea. Hmm. And what those really mean is the actus reus means like an intentional act, right? We, we punish people for doing things intentionally. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, we don't criminalize you if you have a heart attack. Uh, and while driving your car and crash into somebody, right? That's not what the criminal law is concerned with, right? Or if you trip on the sidewalk and uh, stumble into somebody and push them over. Yes, you push them over all right, but it wasn't a voluntary act. So we don't punish that criminally. Uh, And the second element of it is the idea of mens rea. Like for criminal offenses, you you need to have somebody who is like uh, intentionally uh, doing something wrong. And so, for example, you know, we punish people who commit theft if you take something from a store and run away with it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But let's say you went into a store and the clerk failed to scan one of the items in your cart and you walked away with it, right? Not realizing you hadn't paid for it. Well, we don't criminalize that, right? The criminal law is not concerned with accidents or people tripping or (laughs) things, right? We're concerned with sort of morally wrong intentional conduct. And that's a a constitutional principle as well as just being the bedrock of the criminal law. Uh, and the criminal law has taken generally a pretty unsympathetic view to the idea that, well, I'm drunk and somehow I'm not responsible for what I'm doing, right? Yeah. Um, ordinarily, that's not going to amount to any kind of a defense at all, right? Somebody who says, well, I'm drunk, I had reduced inhibitions, or I don't remember it, or any of those things are not getting you very far uh, in most uh, criminal cases. Uh, but there is this category of sort of the hard edge case, which are cases where somebody is so impaired by uh, alcohol and often drugs that they are acting as what's referred to as an automaton, hmm. right? Sort of in a state where they have no control over what they're uh, doing, right? And they're yeah. sort of in a state that would be similar to somebody who was sleepwalking or somebody who was. Uh, you know, engage in some other physical movement. Yeah, their body's moving around, but it's not really the product of uh, sort of a intentional action. Um, and it's been an issue over the last uh, number of decades about, well, how is that to be treated, right? Yeah. Fitting into that framework of, look, we don't punish people who are, uh, you know, having uh, medical conditions or uh, sleepwalking and do something, right? That's not what the criminal law is all about. We don't put people in prison for... Uh, those things. 
Um, and so the particular case that the Supreme Court of Canada was dealing with was a young man who was at a party. He consumed alcohol and then a bunch of psilocybin mushrooms, magic mushrooms. Hmm. Um, and the expert evidence was that it caused him to go into this sort of a state of being a virtual automaton, right, where he had no control over what he was doing. He was completely delusional. And in that state, the man left the party, broke into a random person's home, and hit them with a, a broom. Wow. And then into another home. And the police were called, and he got arrested. Yeah. Uh, and so off he went to trial. Um, and there was expert evidence, which the judge accepted, that this man at the time was in this sort of extreme state of intoxication because of the psilocybin mushrooms that, would, that he had taken. Um, and so the judge had to deal with whether a section of the criminal code, section 33.1, was constitutionally permissible. And that's the section of the criminal code that was added and said, essentially, that voluntary intoxication cannot be uh, a basis to uh, a defense on the basis that uh, you are unable to, uh, you know, form the requisite mens rea or the actus reus of an offense, right? Yes. Um, and that section was introduced by Parliament after an earlier Supreme Court of Canada case dealing with this issue called Davio that was a controversial one. And so the Supreme Court of Canada here ultimately had to struggle with whether the judge's finding that the section was unconstitutional and you can't convict somebody for this kind of movement and activity in a state of being an automaton, uh, whether that section of the criminal code was constitutionally permissible. And the Supreme Court of Canada's answer to that was no, it's not. Um, and uh, they pointed out some of the failings with the section 33.1. The section was so broad uh, that it, for example, made no distinction between a person who might use a substance that was lawful or unlawful. Interesting. So let's say, for example, somebody gave you took pain medication. Yes. And it had a total adverse reaction, and you sort of lost control of yourself under the influence of pain medication or anesthetic or something you were given. Section 33.1 would allow you to be convicted for something you did in that kind of a state, which you say, well, how can that be so, right? We, if you, uh, let's see, here at the hospital, they gave you uh, some anesthetic, you had a totally adverse reaction, you jerked up and punched the doctor, yeah. <laughs> right? The, the, that section would have allowed you to be convicted <laughs> because, well, you voluntarily agreed to take the anesthetic uh, and then you leapt up and punched somebody, right? Yeah. Uh, and so the Supreme Court of Canada found that that section of the criminal code was unconstitutional because it would permit people who were in that extreme state, uh, such that they act, were acting as an automaton, to nonetheless be convicted. Uh, but the Supreme Court did point out, and this is really the tension, right? Because there's uh -huh. a tension here saying, well, look, you know, you can't have, what if somebody just gets into this extreme state of intoxication? Uh, and then just does something terrible to somebody. Yeah, or if they do it on purpose. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so what the Supreme Court of Canada said is that there is a solution to it, and the solution would be to create uh, an offense that would criminalize getting into that kind of extreme state of intoxication intentionally, right? Not the, I had a reaction to the anesthetic or something of that sort. Uh, and then in that state committing an offense. And then the idea would be you'd focus the wrongdoing on the person's decision to take the substance to get themselves into that state, 
rather than trying to criminalize somebody who believes they're fighting with a dragon after they took psilocybin mushrooms, right? Uh, because that it's that latter part, the idea that we're trying to criminalize involuntary activity uh, that just is not consistent with sort of basic principles of criminal law involving the idea that we want to punish people who are doing things morally wrong and with intentional actions as opposed to uh, something else. And so the Supreme Court of Canada has pointed out, look, you know, it's not for us to draft that, that's for Parliament, uh, but uh, there is a solution to this problem. We don't need to have a provision that would allow morally innocent people who have reactions to drugs and are in a state where they are unable to control themselves. We don't need to punish that behavior on the basis that we don't punish the morally innocent. But you could deal with this uh, by creating an offense dealing with the intentionally getting yourself into that state. Uh, and so I expect we'll see a... Um, uh, a legislative response from uh, Parliament, probably along those lines, because, of course, there is a, a legitimate public interest in discouraging people from, you know, getting so drunk they engage in, you know, sort of completely outrageous conduct or taking uh, drugs, knowing that they're going to uh, put themselves in a position where they could think they're fighting a dragon and wind up hitting the neighbor, right? So the the case is not, I think, as some headlines have suggested, uh, a, a decision that somehow getting drunk is a defense to something. It's no. not. Uh, but it's pointing out that in these extreme cases, it's just not acceptable to convict somebody of doing something where the actions were completely involuntary. They had no control over their body at that point. That's not the uh, appropriate solution to it. And if there's going to be a, a criminal law response, it should focus on the getting yourself into that state rather than how you might flail around in that state. Uh, and so uh, it's an important decision, uh, and I think it's important to know that distinction, lest people think somehow, if I have some Bud Light, I, I'm not going to be convicted of uh, you know the bar fight or something I get into. Yeah. That is clearly not the case. All right. Legally speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers, we'll continue right after this break. All right, I'm back to Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. In fact, I'm just seeing the news that broke earlier this morning, Michael, the uh, end or at least the potential end of the saga of the B.C. legislature spending scandal. Um, I'm looking forward to your analysis and thoughts on that one. I know the ruling actually just came out today, though, so I don't expect to put you on the spot there. But we always do like benefiting from your analysis and insight on these matters. No, for sure. That will be a very interesting one to uh, to read. I'll need to read the decision to be able to comment on it in a useful way. Exactly. Um, but there is another decision which also came out from the Supreme Court of Canada, along with the one we just talked about, uh, dealing with a sort of a fundamental issue about this concept, horizontal <laughs> stare decisis. All right, so it's Latin. That. So it's stand to stand by that which has been decided, right? Yeah, that's okay. right. There you go. And so basically our court system is organized in a hierarchy, right? You've got provincial courts, and then above them you've got provincial superior courts, like the D.C. Supreme Court. And then above that, you've got a provincial court of appeal, uh, and you've got a pyramid like that in each and every province. And then sitting on top of all of that is the Supreme Court of Canada, Right. Uh, and things trickle down. So if the Supreme Court of Canada says the law is such and such, then all the courts below 
follow suit, right? And the same would occur in each province. If a provincial court of appeal pronounces what the law is, the courts below would follow and do the same thing, right? You want consistent decisions. Yes. But the Supreme Court of Canada was dealing with the issue of, well, what about when there's a decision from a the same level of court? Like what happens when uh, the B.C. Supreme Court in a trial decision decides the law is X or decides that, for example, a provision is unconstitutional. Does that bind the other judges of the same level of court or are they all free to go off uh, like a herd of cats doing whatever they think might be the right thing? How does hmm. that work? Yeah, how does that work? And, and, and the language is kind of confusing because sometimes you'll hear this sort of language of a, a Supreme Court judge saying, well, and I find this section of the criminal code to be unconstitutional and I strike it down. Hmm. Uh, well, what's, what is that? Is somebody hitting it? or they, is somebody <laughs> ripping There's it a big red pen. Court? Yeah. Yeah, is there a big pen? What's going on there? Uh, and indeed, there is not. And the Supreme Court of Canada has made clear, no, there's no magic, you know, right, you know, nobody's drawing a line through it or, you know, taking the legislation away or something. Uh, but they pointed out that those kinds of decisions, like other uh, legal decisions from a court, are subject to this principle of horizontal stare decisis. And the idea is this. When you have a court of the same level make a legal decision, other judges of the same level of court are required to do the same thing with some limited uh, exceptions to when they could do something different. And the idea is to produce consistency. You, yeah. you don't want two people in the same circumstance being treated in a completely different way because of what judge you drew. You want consistency and predictability, right? Yes. And then the idea is if you disagree with a decision, appeal it. That's kind of why we have appeals. Um, and so the Supreme Court of Canada emphasized that that is a requirement. Judges should do the same thing in subsequent decisions with three exceptions. And the exceptions actually come from a B.C. case back from 1954 called Hansard Spruce Mills. It's a good name. Um, and that case says that, look, a judge of the same level must do the same thing unless one of three things apply. First, if it turns out that the uh, a decision that the earlier judge was relying upon has changed, right? Like if the uh, other judge was relying upon something the Court of Appeal had said and the Court of Appeal changed the law, well, then, of course, you're not, you don't have to keep making the same mistake. Or if you could demonstrate that the judge who made the earlier decision failed to consider some relevant statute or binding authority just made a mistake. Well, you don't have to keep making the same mistake over and over again, right? Mm -hmm. Or thirdly, if you had a decision which was referred to as unconsidered, and really that would be an example of that might be, you know, a judge is trying to make some quick decision on the fly in the middle of a trial, make some decision without really analyzing it, it turns out to be just wrong, right? I that see. happens. Everyone's human. Yeah. And again, you don't have to keep making the same mistake over and over again. But unless one of those things applies, you know, essentially laws changed or whoops, other judges at the same level should do the same thing. And if you don't like the outcome, go and appeal it. And then that way there's predictability in the world and we don't live in a land of legal chaos. Yeah. And so the Supreme Court of Canada has pointed out that really what's going on isn't a big pin through something, but when you have a, a trial judge make a decision, other judges should do the same thing unless it's clear on one of those three grounds uh, that there's a basis to do something else. So it was a good reminder from the Supreme Court of Canada 
In another case that went along with that uh, case involving the psilocybin mushrooms, it was a case involving a person who took an overdose of prescription medication and attacked their mother, <laughs> sad yeah. pattern, uh, but pointing out that that's how other judges sort of approach it, don't just uh, go off and do something different, uh, make a consistent decision. Interesting. Yeah, cause I find that fascinating how judges can, if not directly collaborate with one another, certainly remaining aware of each other's decisions and whether or not there is a, an incentive for one of them to set precedent before the others. Like if you've got a group of judges and they disagree on the issue, how do they get to decide who sets that precedent? Is it whoever happens to be drawn first for the case on that topic or, or how does it work? Well, that's an interesting thing because there are some judgment calls about things like who's going to get assigned to a particular case. Yeah. Right? It's not always going to be known in advance what issues might arise or what arguments might be made. Uh, but certainly in some cases where you'll note that there's, you know, some particular specialized area of the law, you can have uh, decisions made by, for example, the uh, chief judge of the uh, Supreme Court making a decision like, hey, I'm going to assign this case to so-and-so because she's an expert in the area of trust law, right? Yeah. Probably be a good choice. And so there can be uh, those kind of administrative decisions about who might get assigned to a, a particular case. But the point here um, is that, you know, not everything is the length of the foot of the person deciding it. And we, in the law, uh, should strive for consistency and uh, treatment of uh, similar things in a similar way. Uh, and so this is just a, a reminder uh, that that's how these things are to be treated. Uh, and there's an obligation to do uh, make a consistent decision, uh, even if it's not a result of a higher court, even if it's the same level of court, uh, judges are required uh, to act in a consistent fashion, unless you can point out, hey, you got it wrong, or the law has somehow changed, or uh, something of that sort, those uh, exceptions coming from that Hansard Spruce Mills case. But otherwise, that's the decision, and let's all follow it, uh, unless a, a higher court comes to a, a different conclusion. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Just under four minutes left in today's segment of Legally Speaking. How shall we wrap this up? Yeah, I think the final case is an important one and one that we'll have to keep watching. It's a case from B.C., from the B.C. Court of Appeal, uh, dealing with the uh, ICBC no-fault scheme. Um, and it's a, a case dealing with whether the government's decision to prevent people from suing in the B.C. Supreme Court when they're injured in a car accident was constitutionally permissible. Yeah, um, That decision, the uh, trial decision, this was from the uh, Chief Justice of the B.C. Supreme Court, was that parts of that were not constitutionally permissible, uh, on the basis that it violated Section 96 of the uh, Constitution. And that's a section uh, that uh, provides for the appointment of superior court judges, right? They can be appointed by the federal government. And part of Section 96 is that the uh, that section, the one that allows for Supreme Court judges to be appointed by the federal government and to receive protection for things like, you know, they can't just be removed if they make an unpopular decision, right? They can only be removed on a joint resolution of the Senate and House of Commons. Um, that protection would be pretty meaningless, that independence, uh, if, for example, a provincial government could just create some uh, person or body and give that person or body all the powers that a Supreme Court judge would have, right? Um, and so that section, Section 96, has been interpreted to prevent that from happening. Uh, and so 
this case, which just uh, was decided in the B.C. Court of Appeal on a split decision two to one, dealt with the issue of whether, as part of that no-fault scheme, it was permissible to take away people's right to sue in Supreme Court and instead require that you would have to have disputes adjudicated by this body called the Civil Resolution Tribunal, where the members are not independent like judges. They're like short-term government contracted employees. And so there's been much concern about whether that's appropriate because it can both take away somebody's right to go to the Supreme Court to sue uh, and uh, because there's a serious concern about the independence of the people making decisions working at the Civil Resolution Tribunal because after all, with ICBC cases, they're deciding between the government-owned insurance company, (laughs) who's also their employer, right, the government, and some individual. Uh, And so in the Court of Appeal, there was a split, two to one. Two of the judges in the Court of Appeal found that that was okay, uh, not allowing people to sue and having this kind of a body make those decisions. And one judge dissenting, saying that that was not okay, uh, that it was uh, important that the Civil Resolution Tribunal was not independent, uh, and the decision to uh, stop people from going to the Supreme Court breached Section 96 uh, protections. And so I expect we haven't seen the end of it. Likely, particularly given that split of two to one, uh, you can imagine the case uh, uh, going to the Supreme Court of Canada. And so it's an important decision because ultimately the outcome of this is going to determine uh, whether you have the right to sue somebody in court uh, if they uh, hurt you in a car accident. And we've seen controversy over that recently, including things like how bicycle riders are treated when they get run down. Yes. uh, Or people winding up with really inadequate compensation. Like there was a woman who got I think run down uh, in a parent hit and run on video. Yeah, uh, wound up with some meager compensation from ICBC and can't sue. I saw that. Have this yeah. no fault scheme. Yeah. So not the end of it, but there we are, two to one from the court of appeal. The the province can carry on for now. Michael Mulligan, pleasure as always. Legally speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Until next week. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right. Talk to you then.